Welcome to episode 41 of the Running on Ohm podcast with Randy Pierce, experienced runner, hiker, and president of 2020 Vision Quest. In this episode, Randy shares the story of how an unknown neurological disorder caused him to lose his sight at the age of 22 and later become wheelchair-bound. Randy recounts how his guide dog, the Mighty Quinn, was his inspiration in regaining his ability to walk. He discusses him and Quinn's journey hiking all 48 of the over 4,000-foot peaks in the New Hampshire White Mountains. Randy describes his experiences qualifying for the 2015 Boston Marathon in May. He explains his work with the 2020 Vision Quest, which helps support the visually impaired community in achieving their goals. Lastly, Randy reveals details on his exciting 2015 expedition to Mount Kilimanjaro. If you would like to connect with Randy and the Running on Ohm community, you can find us on runningonohm.com, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. In addition, in order to help others find the Running on Ohm podcast, it would be very helpful if you could leave a review on iTunes. Ohm. Welcome, Randy, to the Running on Ohm podcast. Well, thank you very much for letting me join you here today. So how did you become blind? Tell listeners the story about that. So fairly abrupt for me, you know, and I, I, I tend to add a caution in this because it is absolutely not a pity story, though though often when people first hear some of the pieces of that, that's, that's the reaction. But I was 22 years old. I'd been out of college uh, with an engineering degree from the University of New Hampshire for about a year. I had a great job at a high-tech company. And in the span of two weeks, I lost all of the vision in my right eye and roughly half in my left eye into a bit of tunnel vision. And, and obviously the shock at that point is, is pretty significant. And like, like many people dealing with significant loss or change, I was angry, I was frustrated, I was in denial. I, I had a lot of very uh, understandable but inappropriate responses, which, which I've certainly forgiven myself for, and I think it's a natural process. But it was a big change. Uh, the good news for me is that it took 11 years before total blindness came upon me. I sort of have an episodic nature to my condition. They think I have a mitochondrial disease, which basically it's the, uh, it's the part of the cell that transforms food to energy. And it attacks all of my nervous system at various times or many parts of my nervous system. So I'm, I'm still prone to this day that, that some parts of my nerve, my brain, uh, can die in that first instance. It just was the optic nerve, the, the wire between my eye and my brain. Wow. And was there one day when you woke up and things were shifted? I mean, it obviously sounds like it was a gradual progression, but how did you know it was happening? I, uh, I was taking a fencing course, which, uh, you know, with a name like Pierce, I guess a fencing career is a great option, but uh, it was a hobby. And my instructor was, was sort of analyzing why my eyes were moving when he didn't want them to. I was... I was moving my eyes to see things that I should see with my peripheral vision. And I hadn't done that in any class prior to it. And it was really very insightful to him. And it, it probably saved me 11 years of vision because what he did with his sword tip was map out the blind spot that we all have. Everyone has a blind spot uh, in each eye. And he mapped it out and determined that it was more than twice the size of a normal blind spot. And that's why I was subconsciously uh, accommodating for that by shifting my eyes, which, of course, was a tell in the fencing world. So <clears throat> he said, you need to go to the doctor today. Don't waste any time. Go right to the doctor. And the optic nerve is the only nerve visible 
from the outside. They can use magnification, look through your pupil and see it. And the doctor saw that it was swollen. By that night, I was in UMass Medical Center in Worcester, and by the next day, both eyes were severely impacted. It was two days later that one eye was totally blind, but in that process, they were able to start a course of medication that probably saved me from going totally blind all at once. And currently, how would you describe your vision? So I'm uh, no light perception, total blindness. I mean, I am, I am the minority. 93% of the people in the world who are, are blind are likely to have some level of vision, whether it's a little bit of motion, color, whether it's a central field or some level of impact. 7% of us are totally blind, um, which means that there's absolutely no reaction to light or motion or, or any visual cues. And do you often wonder what your life would have been like if you had been born blind versus becoming blind later on, or is that not a thought you really give much you know, energy it's, towards? It's a common question in, in the presentations we do. You know, we do a lot of school presentations, and they, they will ask any question, which I love. I, I embrace that. And the answer is most of us go through the world, you know, evaluating all the possibilities that could have come about in our life. Um, it's a fun bit of fancy. And the question that I get is typically, you know, would you rather have been born blind or to go blind, which is better? And I, I have no idea which is better because I've only done one of those things, obviously. I can say that the people I interact with who've been blind since birth have better echolocation and spatial relations than I seem to, which doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that's a result of being, being born blind and dealing with it longer, but it's probably a significant factor. But I have a better tie-in to the visual world. I can picture a sunset more naturally and readily I can take the descriptions that people will give and put a little comprehension from my own experience into it. Um, so there's benefits and detriments to each way, right? I think it's just different. Very interesting. Now, when did running come into your life, or was hiking something that came into your life before running? So hiking preceded it, and it, it goes back to that mitochondrial disease. In the year 2004, I was placed in a wheelchair because my cerebellum, which is your balance center, had been badly damaged by this condition. And I couldn't stand up for more than a few seconds without falling. I couldn't determine which way was up, basically. And while I was in the wheelchair, and, you know, the timing on that, I was there for one year, eight months, and 21 days. And the fact I know it so specifically probably tells you a little bit about how I felt. It was hard. It was very challenging to be totally blind and in a wheelchair. Um, so during that time, I did a lot of things to find my way out of the wheelchair. Is it possible? Are there things I can do? And as I progressed, I went from, you know, I, I did six surgeries where they, they went through my eardrum. They call it a trans-tympanic injection and basically gave a steroid to my vestibular nerve, so the nerve that gives you balance from your, from your inner ear. And the notion was if they could make it maybe shout a little louder to my brain, could my brain adapt? And then I wore this device called the brain port on my tongue, which it basically gives you electrical signals from a gyroscope as you tip your head in whichever direction so that you would, you would enhance your proprioceptors. Those are the nerves that connect you to the ground. It's a, a long process coming out of that wheelchair. And the last thing, I, went, I started walking with Lofstrain crutches. Those are the crutches that they kind of grab your forearm and give you a handle to hold on. And the notion was I'd have four legs for extra balance. Right, those two crutches would represent two new legs. And the more I practiced, the better I got. So they wanted to get me to just a single one of those. And, and they took a hiking sick. 
as the choice for what would give me good, strong support and that third leg because they were trying to free up a hand to let me use a cane or eventually a guide dog. That was part of the goal. And just like riding a bicycle, slow is more challenging. If you can pick up a little speed, it gets easier to keep your balance on a bike. So it was true for me as my brain was healing around this, this damage to my balance system. And in that process, a guide dog became a really big advantage. And Guiding Eyes for the Blind gave me the mighty Quinn, who was the guide dog who I, I credit with really taking my walking to the next level because his work in the harness gave me a little more stability. The speed increase gave me a little more balance. And the more that I practiced, and we did this as much as I could every day, the more I didn't need that extra stick in my right hand, that hiking stick. So that eventually led to hiking, as you pointed out. But in order to be a better hiker, what I discovered was that Quinn really loved to run, and he always wanted to see if we could go a little bit faster. So as he introduced me to running, I I realized two quick benefits. Being in better shape made it easier for me to hike because mentally hiking was very demanding. So if my conditioning improved, less energy is spent going, wow, am I tired, and more energy was available to think about how to handle the tricky footing underneath me. And the second benefit was that it hardened his pads so that on the more difficult terrain sometimes, he didn't need to wear the boots, which he didn't like, but I needed them to protect his pads as his pads got harder from running. That that went away. So he was my, my sort of introduction to running. And we began running road races with him as a guide dog leading me. And that's something that just wasn't done here in New England, at least. There's a couple of places around the country where where two other people were sort of exploring that option. Um, Wow. And I ran over 30 road races with him guiding me. And and some marvelous moments of races not really being sure how to handle that. You know, handling blind runners, most races will let you have a human guide. Uh, accompany you and and they work well with you. I you know can't give race directors enough support for their general attitude. Um, but they never thought of a guide dog doing it. And there were some fun moments. You know the Market Square Day road race in Portsmouth. They were a little leery and they asked if I'd be willing to start in the back. And I'm a pretty quick runner. I said, well, I, I could, but I'll pass more people if, if I do that. They said, well, will you humor us? And you know we finished in the top 10% in that race, and uh, that meant we passed 90% of the race along the way, which it went seamlessly because he really was good. In fact, you know, the only the only collision that happened that day that I was aware of, I was running and I, I hear this tremendous crash probably 10 feet ahead of me and to the slightly to the right. And a woman who'd been running behind me quickly saw me tip my head and she said, that's not your fault. He was so enamored of your guide dog, he was watching you when he ran into the water table. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's great. So that's, great. that's really where running came about. Uh, Quinn gifted running back to me and having spent so much time in the wheelchair i mean walking running all of those are gifts that i appreciate in a way i never had before was it an instant connection with mighty quinn or did it take a while for you to establish that trust to be able to run with them um it takes some time you know it was a pretty quick connection for him and i in regards to basic guide work uh and his guide work was was fantastic but to advance it to the next level, because taking all of the obstacles they are constantly watching and thinking about, which way do I need to avoid that obstacle? Do I need to actually stop him because he needs to tap it out to realize it? Looking up because I'm six foot four and tree branches and signs can, can be a danger and looking down. You know, that's, there's a lot of things he's managing. And then when you start adding speed to that, you increase that even more. And you, you add a race and you're adding the component of 
hundreds or potentially thousands of additional runners around you that are moving targets he has to navigate. I mean, that, that took some not only trust, but actually just practice and building up our skills um, to make sure that we both were ready. Yeah, and you hiked all 48 peaks um, of New Hampshire's over 4,000 feet tall mountains. That's was Mighty Quinn with you for the entire experience? Yeah, he was. So he was my motivation in that, again, in that, you know, he really loved the woods. And I told you that I wanted to walk as much as possible with him. So if we're going to go out and do all this walking to get me better at it, we want to do it. We're going to enjoy it more. And, you know, sidewalks have their usefulness, but the woods have a calm and a serenity that I sort of wanted because I was thinking a lot about how I was able to do this again and what it meant to me. And so the fact that it was a hiking stick in my hand as that first balance support made me think, you know, I used to love to hike as a, as a kid. Nothing big, but I did a lot of hiking. And I, I wondered if I could do it with Quinn because he was so keen on, on managing these obstacles that we set out and by the mountain. And it was such, it was a short mountain, but it was such a rewarding experience for both of us. You know, dogs come with this, this marvelous indicator of how happy they are. It's, it's their tail. How hard is wagging? And his was just wagging nonstop. And that exuberance, I wanted to share with him even more. So... I like to think of this notion, right? I have a disability. I have something I can't do. I can't see. We all have things we can't do in this world, right? And it's just the, the way of, of the world. There's so many opportunities. The trick is this. Ability awareness, what you can do, is so much more important, right? I believe that what you can do is always going to be more important than what you can't do. And I'll take it one step further because Quinn was sort of showcasing this for me. When I first went blind, I thought everything fun and everything important in life was no longer possible. And I was steadily learning throughout all of my life that that is so far from the truth. Really, anything, absolutely anything, in my opinion, is possible if you're willing to problem solve and work hard. Right? I mean, it may not, it may not even come in your lifetime. Right? When I say that it's possible, that doesn't mean you're going to succeed. Right? Blind people don't drive cars today. But by the year 2020, it's expected that four car manufacturers in, in the United States will have cars that can be driven by the blind because we've advanced on that. You know, 100 years ago, a blind person couldn't read a book. Then a 14-year-old student named Louis Braille solved that problem. So, you know, the, the solutions may not get you immediate results. It may not even happen in your world or your lifetime, but you'll progress towards it if you're willing to work. And on the smaller scale, goals like climbing a mountain, or running a road race, a marathon, those are within your more immediate reach, but they're still going to require those same tools, problem solving and hard work. And I thought in 2010 that taking 10 years to climb all 48 of those 4,000-plus foot peaks would be a great goal. And as I set out onto them, I realized quickly that Quinn had a good aptitude, but he was not likely to be working for 10 years more with me. That's just unreasonable. The average guide dog works six to eight years of work time. So I sort of began trying to hike them quicker. And somebody introduced me the notion of if I undertook them in the winter, I could do something remarkable. If I, if I wanted, I could hike all 48 in one single winter, which is something that only prior to that point, only 46 people had managed. 46 people and two dogs ever. And now wow. a blind guy and a, a guide dog who's going to not only climb it as the third dog, but it's the third dog who has to do most of the work of guiding to make it happen. Um, and we did succeed in that in 2012. So that gave us all 48 in the winter. But 
I continued to do them in the summer because the summer is more challenging. The footing is more challenging. I like to think of it as different. Interesting. Right? But where do you put your foot in those twisty, rocky roots where you just there's, there's not necessarily any easy place? And in the winter, that becomes smooth. It may be steep, but it's smooth. So winter brings new challenges, but it takes away my hardest. So last August, 37 months after I started, I finished all 48 for the second time, once in the winter, once in the, in the summer. And Quinn was with me for every one of those peaks. And what is your favorite peak to hike, and why is that? Uh, so it's interesting, right? It's like music, right? The right song for the right occasion. And I have the right mountains and the right trails for the right occasions. Well, you know, what am I looking for? Am I looking for a, for a quick celebration? Am I looking to introduce new hikers? You know, my favorite mountain to introduce some new hikers to is, uh, is a pair of mountains in Thornton, New Hampshire, called Welch Dickey. They're not even 4,000-footers because they give you a little sample of all types of terrain, nothing too extreme, but a little bit of work. The first viewpoint is majestic and beautiful, and you've done the least work possible to get to that viewpoint. And it, it's sort of a way to tease people to say, hey, here's some of the, rewar- the rewards. You may have to work harder to get some slightly better versions of this, um, but it's a little sampler. Now, that's not my favorite hike. That's my favorite new person hike. You know, I, uh, I think I could probably name easily 10 that stand out, but I'll give you one that stands out. I just won't give it the full superlative. Not my favorite, just a very special moment. And that hike is, it's it's called the Bonds Traverse. You actually climb four 4,000-footers when you do the Bonds Traverse. You go through the biggest wilderness in New Hampshire, the Pemigewasset Wilderness. And in our instance, we go over Mount Zeeland first, and then we get out to West Bond. And what our group did is we watched the sunset on West Bond, because it faces to the west, and it sets over Mount Garfield, and people describing the beauty of it. It was just sort of magical. And we had our campsite already set up fairly close at the Geo Shelter. And then our crew just, we, we went back and we grabbed a very little bit of sleep, just enough, and then we packed up and hit the trail first thing in the morning so that by the time the sun was rising, we were on the next 4,000-footer bond, which faces more to the east. And we watched from back to back, sunrise to sunset, uh, sunset to sunrise, excuse me, we watched from the top of different peaks. And it was just so tranquil and moving. And each of those experiences had something different, an ending and a beginning. And those are so tied in our lives in so many ways that I, uh, I had a lot of good thoughts. That's, that's the one I'll remember uh, the most. And there's, there's a mountain on that traverse called Gio, and it has a second peak that, that we affectionately call Quinn's Knoll. It is the most remote person. It is the most remote place in the whites. You can see nothing man-made anywhere from that location, if you have vision. It's calm. You're above tree lines. You get some nice breezes that come through. And we sat there and had a little little meal, and uh, we just like to think of that as Quinn's place. And probably when I get to get out there this summer, I will uh, I will see that a few of his ashes get scattered there. Mm. Beautiful. Now, turning the focus to running, you qualified for the 2015 Boston Marathon. What was that experience like? So it was a real important goal to me. I I had hoped to qualify and run this year's Boston Marathon um, because I had finished the the peaks, and that was going to be my goal. But we learned that Quinn had bone cancer, and that changed my fall. And I put my world, instead of 
using Bay State to try to qualify and, and run this year, I, I put my time giving him all the love and care I could. Um, and I lost him in January. And so I had a couple offers to run it for the charities, but I really I wanted to run it totally in his honor. And so I wanted to qualify. And I said, I don't have to run this year's. I'll qualify. I'll make this whole year from Boston to Boston. We'll be dedicated to him. So that in mind, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd qualify early. Don't risk letting it go. And the first good opportunity for me to qualify was this Cox Providence Marathon on, on May 4th. And the only challenge is when you come off winter, it's a little bit harder to train in the winter. I was a little more restricted due to the loss of my guide, Doug. And so I set out starting the low mileage on the treadmill. And that's okay, but a treadmill for a blind runner really doesn't come close to simulating the impact because terrain is so important to me. Treadmill is generally flat and smooth. And, you know, I can use some elevation work, but I really can't simulate all the things that are going to happen to my ankle. I can't simulate the buffeting of wind or the jostling of people or the turns which are harder to make when you can't see. So that was limited, but I was going to switch to some outdoor runs. And just at the time that I should have been doing that, my guide school said, we have another guide dog for you. Are you ready to train? And that really takes a, a month pretty close of work that I should have been applying to long-run training with people outside, and I focused it on the new guide dog because this lovely lady, Autumn, that's with me, she's important to all aspects of my life. So I miss a lot of my long-run train trainings. And then just after she and I reached the point, now all of the best runners for doing my long runs are shutting down their long runs because they're going to run Boston or they're going to recover from Boston. So I was undertrained, and I knew that going into this marathon. Um, and that was I, I found a runner who understood that who had so much experience that he was going to lend me some of his experience as well as his guide skills. Um, and that was Tor, Tor Curley's. And the marathon was pretty much as he predicted, um, which is a credit to that experience. He said he, he believed I had enough resolve and willpower that we were likely to get through this, probably even likely to qualify for Boston, but it was going to have a price. And the question really comes down to it. And I think we all do this in any event or any goal. Are we willing to pay the price to reach the goal we have? And if my goal were just to qualify for Boston and I could do it for another race, then I could train up a little bit differently and be more prepared. Um, and what Tor told me is that we'd run 10 miles together. That was it. We had one training run week before. And <clears throat> it was a pretty good experience. We actually learned some things. We did have a little bit of, a, of an accident. I took a fall. Um, but that's, you know, that's going to happen occasionally in this work. And we learned enough from that. We felt confident that wouldn't happen again. Uh, so 10, 10 first miles of the marathon went pretty smooth. The next five went okay as well. Uh, definitely some added work because we were seeing how much harder adding all the people to the course was. And, you know, of course, pothole-laden New England roads are a challenge in and of themselves. Miles 15 to 20 were real hard. Uh, somewhere in there we started running along the beach where the, the winds were gusting in and buffeting me a little bit and the result of that of course challenges my balance so while i am out of the wheelchair and i am able to do a lot of things that doesn't mean that there isn't a little extra challenge worked in there for my balance and when you start jostling me i have to work harder to keep my balance and all these working harder things they raise your heart rate yeah makes it harder for you to 
digest food and get that nutrition that, you know, by mile 18, you need some nutrition in there as well. So that was getting more challenging. And the only part that was consistent and strong for me was Tor's guidance. He was just a rock. He gave me the encouragement when I needed it. He gave me the suggestions of when we needed to slow down or when we could try to pick it up a little bit if we needed to. Uh, Told me it was okay when we needed to walk a little bit of a hill if that happened. And his goal all along was the first 10 will do well. The next 10 I think will struggle somewhere in there. And if we hit 20, willpower with everything else you've done in life is going to be enough that together we'll get through this. And that was fairly prophetic because those last 6.2 were all of those things. Uh, Some parts of it, I was pretty emotional because that's what happens when you're really running out of reserves. You you scrape away layers. You get to really dig in deep and see how important it is to you. How much are you willing, you know? By mile 24, both of my legs were seizing and, and muscles on my quads were spasming pretty regularly. Um, you know, it's fun when my, my hydration pack, which we both carried, try to make water stops a little easier, a little harder to navigate water stops when you can't see them. Um, we had both emptied. He had refilled, and he was having me drink from his hydration pack just to save some time on not filling up mine. And every time we hit those, we did we did fill in some Gatorade to try to make up for the nutrition I wasn't able to really get because the gels weren't staying down so well. And and like I said, he, he never faltered on the guidance, but he added to that just, just a constant support and encouragement. If I want this goal, it's there. And I know that, and the reminder still helps. He gave me things to focus on instead of what hurts and to let me know that that hurt is okay hurt. Will so you I'm, run Boston 2015 with Thor? Um, I I don't know that yet. So there's a there's a marvelous woman who ran one of my first races with me, uh, Christine Hood, and she and I have plans to do it. She ran Boston very strongly and very well this year. She was my first outdoor run of this year, um, and she ran for a vision charity, uh, and Mass Pioneers who she ran for, but for their vision work. And I told her I would honor that if she's ready. We're going to run together. Uh, Tor has a, a growing family. He's got a new new child being born end of June, and he doesn't know where his running will be uh, come next year. So that's that's a long time away. What I know is I will run again with Tor, and we will be friends for a long time, and that experience will keep us together. Um, now, I will run Boston 2015, and I will be better prepared. <laughs> so I may need a little bit less of Tor's race time guidance. Um, so I suspect he'll have a lot of, of encouragement, advice, and suggestions all the way through. And, and who knows if we don't end up running it a little bit together, too. You know, the world, the world has some interesting changes if you stay open to things. Very true. Well, I'm excited to cheer you on next year. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of Boston. And thank you for that notion is that there's so many great stories to cheer on. That's, you know, that's what separates it in so many ways from many other races. Community support at races is incredible. In Boston, it truly is. It's just so deep, and part of that is those inspirational stories. You know, you can be there for the first two hours when the elites go through, and they'll, you know, I'm sure they ride some energy at that, but, you know, they get a mission. They're flying through. And then the next two hours, you get some of the really quality runners that are coming through. But the next five hours after that, you know, hours four to nine and beyond, you get the stories that are just so incredible, and the crowds don't leave. They stay there to support those people. That's the heart of it, right? That's, it's people showing uh, 
uh, my buddy Sherpa John used to use the term human potential. Human potential is an incredible thing to witness, to experience, and to remind yourself exists within you if you're willing to dig in a little. Mm, I love that. Now, what is your work with Vision, excuse me, 2020 Vision Quest? What are your goals for it, and what is it for listeners who don't know? Sure. So it's uh, it's a 501c3 charity that I founded in 2010. And our purpose, very simply, is to give back. So we're an all-volunteer organization. All of the funds we raise are divided equally between two organizations that make a difference in getting those first steps when you transition to blindness. Uh, guide Eyes for the Blind, the guide school who provides me with my guide dogs and many other people. The average cost of a guide dog is $45,000, and they don't charge people anything for them because, you know, in my instance, they charge me 45000 I wouldn't have a guide dog. I'd, uh, I'd have just a white cane. But <clears throat> that's, that's their mission, so they raise money to do that, and we want to help them. So half of what we raise goes to those. The other half of all the money we raise goes to the New Hampshire Association for the Blind, another 501c3, who train people who are managing and transitioning through vision loss to have the key skills, right? How do you cook? How do you, how do you access your mail? How do you do any of the life things? How do you use a cane so that you can walk safely from any point? And all of that independence and living better, whether it's a guide dog or, or New Hampshire Association for the Blind, that, that costs money. And I got those services. But the, the reality is, in order for that to sustain, people have to give. So I am, I'm tremendously proud to say that's what we do as our charity component. But what's our value added? Why should people give to us rather than giving to those organizations directly? And here's why, in my mind. We are all volunteers, so none of the money we raise goes to our adventures, our races, or our hikes. All the money goes to those organizations. And we go out to schools and nonprofit organizations, and we provide presentations at absolutely no cost. And I've spoken to over 32,000 students since 2010 in schools in regards to ability awareness, teamwork, achieving through adversity, communication, all of the things that are inherent in how I've managed to do what I've been able to do. And the notion is, I mean, these messages are for every person. You see the benefit that it can bring to changing somebody's life when they can learn to believe in themselves. And I think that our story and our approach illustrates it so poignantly. You know, our testimonials from schools are just overwhelming that say this message has to continue. And we absolutely intend to do that. That that is where I get my most joy of accomplishment. It's not the it's not the peak of a mountain, it's not crossing the finish line. Those those are great moments. It's when you get a note from a from a teacher that says, You've changed the lives of all or most of the students that got to hear your words today because they know that in their future anything is possible if they're willing to, to follow a few things because you've shown them the path. Right? They've had a blind guide because what I love to say, this, this is how I sort of wrap it up. I say, you know, the disability that I have is that I can't see, as I mentioned to you earlier. And if you believe that anything is possible, then let me show you how a blind man can see. And in our presentations, we do that. And when I finish, I don't think there's a person who doesn't have a much better grasp to this notion of our tagline, which is to achieve a vision beyond your sight. Um, you know, we, we don't see with our eyes. We see with our, our mind, with our imagination, with our and if you want the neurology of it, but when I illustrate that so poignantly and let them set up their futures in a better way, that's a that's a message that has to keep going. 
That's amazing. I hope to get to hear you speak in person someday, whether it be at a school or elsewhere. That's really beautiful. Now, what is ahead for 2014? What are you excited about? I know 2015 holds the Boston Marathon, but this year, this summer, what's happening? Sure. Well, we've got a, we've got a fair number more presentations. I'm, I'm going to do yet another graduation commencement, which is a pretty rewarding choice um, when people ask you to, to give the commencement, which really, you know, they call it a commencement. It's really the beginning of the next stage of people's lives, and when somebody wants you to start that, that's good. But I have a lot of races. I have a lot of training to to put under my belt to get this going. And I'm training, obviously, for, for Boston and a couple of marathons leading into that. Um, but I'm going to continue my climbing, and we're going to announce by the probably by the time you release this, our big news, that I've accepted um, an offer to join an expedition to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. That will be in September 2015, but all the groundwork, all the foundation work for that is going to be 2014. So come off the Boston Marathon and be well on the way to, to climbing the tallest standalone mountain in the world. And how? what will be a part of that process? How many people will be on your crew to go there? So my immediate crew is two very good friends who are going to work as the guides for that mountain because I don't know whether my current guide, Autumn, uh, dog guide, is going to be ready to, to climb mountains with me or not. We're actually going to give her a little test in Maine in a couple of weeks on Mount Agamenticus. We're going to hike that very small little mountain with a group of students from South Berwick. Um, and that will be our test. But you know, for the big mountains, I can't plan. So two human guides immediately. And the team is looking to be a considerable bit larger than that. We'll finalize that by the end of this summer. Um, so that's, uh, that's the prep there. And there will be a lot of climbing. And the community of support, you know, it's like training for road race. I can't expect somebody's going to go out and do every training run with me. I'm going to have 15 people that some can do Monday this week and, and maybe Tuesday and some in between there. I've got a lot of runs that I've got to do. Um, and then get into all of the school presentations because I always say I want to reach more people than peaks. And that means that, you know, there's volunteers who help drive me to get there. There are people who share our story so that schools know about these opportunities. Or, or even better, you know, we do corporate presentations and ask them for an honorarium to pay our bills. And, I've spoken to Google and TJX and Bank of New Hampshire, and you know, there's you got to talk to as many folks as possible to get the important messages out there, whether it's running, climbing, or, or again, that human potential that I mentioned earlier. And who would you consider your biggest inspiration? It could be someone living, someone dead. I mean, I know today we talk on Mother's Day, and obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of strong women in your life. Is there anyone in particular that really inspires you? Oh, there are so many, uh, and again, it's towards occasion, and <clears throat> I think this year will highlight that, um, you know, and it's it's not a person, it's my boy, the mighty Quinn, um, uh, my dog, my dog can be my inspiration, we'll think about this, right, I, I want to give his job description on a mountain trail, because I think it has so much power to understand the devotion, the dedication, the focus, the determination that's involved, right, he's two foot tall, I'm six foot four. So if you were doing Quinn's job, you'd be guiding somebody near 18 feet tall, weighing over 700 pounds, with feet the size of a table, up these narrow, twisty trails with drop-offs and water crossings, never mind all the snow climbs, and you can't speak and they can't see. Think about that job description for a moment, right? And if you do it well, you'll get a pat on the head and some kibble, right? That's such an incredible amount of love and devotion to choose that job, 
to love that job. And we had days that we, we were hiking for 15 hours pretty much straight, you know, to, to get one destination to the other. Think about maintaining that mental concentration that long. So <clears throat> the Mighty Coin is my inspiration right now that stands out. Um, but I want to give you a person, too. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to choose my mom, who is very, very supportive and inspirational, and my wife as well. And it's Mother's Day. That makes it easy. But I want to, I want to give a shout-out to Tor, who make the choice to change their race experience. Right? They, they could just go run the race for them. A lot of racing is a little bit independent. The teamwork is more how you support each other in training. But when I'm running a, a race, when a blind person of, of most levels of, of low vision is running a race, we are dependent on somebody choosing to guide us, to change their race experience, to put their focus and concentration on all these dangers for us and build the trust level that lets us work effectively. Tor and I met once before we ran a marathon, and he got to see me at my, my lowest, hardest challenge, really. Um, and he knew that was coming, and yet he still undertook that. He knew he'd have to be that support. The people who make those choices, those are heroes that I love to get behind, and I absolutely think you want inspiration. I'm, I'm proud of what I get to do. I'm proud of how hard I worked and that I got to qualify for Boston in my very first marathon while undertrained, but I'm far more inspired by a person who can make that possible, and mm. that's, that's the guide. That's really, really sweet. To close up our interview, I have a few either-or questions. All right. Apples or oranges? Oranges. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Smoothies or juices? Ooh, smoothies, but it's a closer one there. Mountains or oceans? I'm a mountain man, no doubt about it. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much, Randy, for sharing your story, your inspiration, your wisdom on the Running on Elm podcast. Well, thank you, and thank you even more for choosing to share so many inspirational stories and uplift us all. Good luck in all your endeavors, and thanks for running a race here with me throughout this interview. Um, thanks for listening to episode 41 of the Running on Om podcast with Randy Pierce, experienced runner, hiker, and president of 2020 Vision Quest. If you would like to connect with Randy and the Running on Om community, you can find us on runningonom.com, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. In addition, in order to help others find the Running on Om podcast, it would be very helpful if you could leave a review on iTunes. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a beautiful day.